Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. The illness is not SARS-CoV-2. The illness is the social forces and the technology that have torn our, the fabric of our communities asunder. Those are the words of Dr. Robert Malone. We will get to my full conversation with him right after this short word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. I'm here with Dr. Robert Malone. Robert, welcome to Post Woke. Thank you. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to, to talk with you and with your audience. Well, I appreciate you making time to, to talk with me. So I, I followed you closely and I look at you use more than half of your public speaking time to focus on things like human dignity and building community, talking about seeking healing and not division. You urge people to think for themselves and you emphasize the importance of informed consent and bioethics. And unlike virtually all other high profile doctors and scientists, you have zero financial conflicts of interest. Twice a week on your Substack, you share silly, funny memes and cartoons, and you even married your high school sweetheart. So how are you the one getting banned by Twitter and being portrayed as a boogeyman so scary that Neil Young has to leave Spotify? Do you ever sit back and ponder this paradox? And has anyone within your opposition ever mentioned or addressed, even privately, what you really do and who you really are? Um. That's an interesting question. Uh, I don't worry about it too much anymore. At first, it was a little bit of a shock. Uh, two interviews in particular, uh, one with the uh, Atlantic Monthly and one with the New York Times, in which we really let the journalists into our lives and, and in good faith provided them with tons of documentation, hours of discussion, uh, walked them through the science, both ended up straight on hit jobs um, and uh, lesson learned. Uh, if you look in the Substack, you'll find the pieces on uh, Requiem for a Gray Lady that walks you through uh, all of the dialogue and setup and kind of addresses the question, um, Robert, why were you so stupid as to allow the New York Times into your house and into <laughs> your life? Uh, um, and uh, and it puts it in the context of some other reporting that's been done on journalism in general and the ethical problems and lapses associated with modern journalism. You know, for a guy like me, I don't know about yourself, 
um, I, I tend to uh, think of people as good. It's yes. just, you know, you, everybody has that set point. You can, you can, um, I think it's like the starting set point for any uh, political philosophy is answering the question, is man good or is man bad? And, uh, or evil, if you want to go to extremes. And, and I've always kind of been biased to assuming that people are generally good. Likewise. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid I, I'm a little more circumspect on that with modern journalism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, and I, for instance, I had a colleague, uh, I won't mention that, uh, um, runs a small, uh, online publishing operation focused on clinical trials in, uh, he was talking to me about how, oh, he really had to get uh, these latest findings and, and somebody was going to help him get an interview with the New York Times. <laughs> I was like, do you know what you're saying? Just read my <laughs> Substack. Don't go there. Okay. They'll just hurt you. Um, this, is, this is not about fair in any way, shape or form. And you have to get over that. Otherwise, you cannot continue to exist in this environment. This is a landscape of total information warfare. And, uh, you know, I can tell you're sensitive to that by the name of your podcast. Yes. Uh, this is, um, if you expect to be treated fairly in this media landscape, uh, you are going to be sorely disappointed and sore in so many different ways. Uh, so, um, so the unfairness part um it first really hit me when uh, this aggressive editing of my Wikipedia biography, which you would think would be just, you know, a biography, um, you know, like any other academic. And um, this gentleman who it literally has as his avatar a sock puppet, <laughs> and it turns out is tightly linked to British intelligence um, and has aggressively edited, apparently it's really a front for a whole operation, intelligence operation, because otherwise somebody is modifying Wikipedia pages 24 uh, seven in an un, in unhumanly possible way. Uh, and, and it was really brought into focus for me uh, by this uh, Canadian uh, um, humorist uh, who goes under the moniker, what's her face? And a really, really clever woman who did a piece that she titled, Who is Robert Malone? And uh, obviously an allusion to uh, Atlas Shrugged and um, now the title of the podcast. <laughs> and um, I mean, of the of the Substack. Yes. So um, uh, she just broke down uh, the uh, aggressive editing um uh, and, and highlighted it and, and went back to uh, um, the archived um, uh, web information using the Wayback Machine, which I didn't even know about at the time, and used it to document who and how and why. And that was kind of where I realized that I was no longer in Kansas. Yes. Uh, and, um, and from there... Uh, this gradual reveal of, uh, you know, really wicked behavior on the potter of uh, modern, the, the phrase that's used is advocacy journalism, which I suggest is merely a euphemism for propaganda. Um, it's another way to politically correctly say something 
that is not a pleasant thing. Uh, and um, what do I think these people think about me? I think they think they see me as the enemy. Um, I think that there was a whole framing done very early on around the vaccines, linking them to right-wing extremists. Uh, um, and uh, the legacy, the corporate media has never kind of got out of that. And uh, so on, on top of that, I had the uh, unfortunate problem of um, being written out of history by a concerted campaign that involved UPenn and uh, Tech to uh, promote uh, Carrico and Weissman as the original inventors of all of this technology and the concepts. And I, I, uh, I just, I, I didn't want to make a fuss out of it. I, I'm just tired of, of fighting that battle. You know, the patents, I always figured, well, the patents are the patents. And, you know, um, there it is. I'm an inventor and uh, I filed the disclosures when I did. And those are the facts and that should be sufficient. But in the modern media landscape, facts are fungible. Uh, and uh, everything can be distorted to serve uh, an agenda. And unfortunately, I was just in the way of uh, trying to, it was a very aggressive uh, campaign to market these two for winning a Nobel Prize in the last round. And I was in the way of that. And uh, so I think that was another reason why I got hit so hard so fast. Another yeah. one was that, I, um, I am an insider uh, and know this system extremely well. So I think maybe I'm a threat. Uh, and I think that might have been, it's very odd. Uh, Jill and I put out a book in February, literally, on how to protect yourself from the novel coronavirus because it didn't even have a name then. And uh, February, February 2020. Correct. And uh, um, and that was moving along. It was very straightforward, you know, grow a garden, um, use alcohol wipes when you get in the airplane. You know, we actually advocated for mask use. Uh, that was a mistake, but I'll own it. And, uh, and put it out on, uh, we, we worked our cans off, particularly Jill, put it out on Amazon as a self-publish. And it was going along fine. Um, we priced it at Amazon's minimum recommended so everybody could get access to it. And uh, there was a series of meetings in the White House, not about us, but I think we were just collateral damage uh, with Amazon and also at the World Health Organization. And then it was summarily deleted. And uh, they, they broke, and, it, and it, the excuse was the now familiar phrase it violated community standards without any explanation <laughs> of what those community standards were. Uh, and, um, and, it also violated the normal process in Amazon self-publishing. Uh, and they were kind of abashed and apologetic about it, the people that we were able to contact, but there was no appeal. There was no rationale given other than it violated community standards and uh, no appeal uh, to be had. Uh, so we didn't even have an opportunity to correct things. That was another key point uh, that was a, you're not in Kansas anymore moment. I would imagine. Uh, but it's been a, yeah, I mean, particularly for Jill, she really put her heart and soul into it um, uh, to come up with a, you know, it was, I don't know, 150 page book or something like that in uh, two weeks that was all footnoted and scholarly and uh, detailed. 
um, designed uh, for our community to help people uh, and then just have it summarily deplatformed at a time when uh, none of us had really even imagined the type of uh, censorship, defamation, gaslighting, and other attacks that we would all <coughs> come to be uh, totally um, expecting on a routine basis now. I mean, I think for most of us, uh, um, we're in, and of course they're broadening it out now uh, to all kinds of topics uh, that are, are, if you express opinions that are contrary to the accepted um, uh, storyline, then um, you're, you will be deplatformed and censored and attacked and all these other things in so many different ways. Well, so what, I think we were just kind of early in the curve. <laughs> yeah, and look, and look, I'm with you 100%. I, my, my starting point is that people are good, but and I try to maintain that perspective. But the, one of the catchphrases in my podcast is to keep your guard up because this is about the art of intellectual self-defense. And I, you, you, you get hit enough times and you get betrayed enough times, you recognize that people do get motivated by different things. And everyday people, um, just to bring it back to some of the stuff you said, like, you know, like they remember mostly what they hear first. So something like, I remember the, the first time your name crossed my radar was articles denouncing you as the as pretending that you were involved in the mRNA um, research. And so my, now if I was any, I'm not any other person, but if I was a different kind of person, my immediate perception of you would have been shaped right there. Then I started doing some digging. And like I said, I've listened to many, many of As it was books. for many people, including yeah. many academics. And then when uh, you mentioned Wikipedia, the the um, the founder of Wikipedia is one of the World Economic Forum's young global leaders graduates. So, so it's it's they have, they cover so many bases and people get motivated. People people hear this and then they're acting from a place of fear, which is something that you very recently wrote about this uh, concept of fear porn. And obviously, we, we both have uh, it, interviewed and worked with Matthias Desmet, where he explains how this type of matrix can be implemented. And you clearly were a threat because you were an insider. They probably never counted in a million years Dr. Robert Malone as someone that was going to stray from the party line when they put this matrix into place. Well, that's probably true. I think that probably I was below their radar. I, I think because I've intentionally been so. I've, I, you know, one of the things that makes me different is that I've had to live in an extremely hostile, aggressive uh, information landscape in academia and in uh, gene therapy and in uh, vaccine development and biodefense my whole entire life. Uh, and, um, and I'm used to speaking in public forums and dealing with hostile academics and mm -hmm. uh, being able to hold my own in those environments. I have learned like you many uh, ways uh, to um, deflect and to um, uh, break through uh, host hostility um, in public speaking and interacting. So I didn't come into this naive with my toolkit. I have benefited from uh, considerable coaching by uh, um, uh, a number of, of senior media uh, experts 
that uh, have also been through this and understand the nature of modern media information warfare. And so that's really helped too. Uh, to, uh, and, and they've, you know, they warned me not to engage with the New York Times. And then afterwards they were like, well, I told you so. Uh, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, so lesson learned. Yeah, it is, it is a, uh, I, didn't, I, know, I don't know of any other way to say it other than it is total 21st century information, knowledge in media warfare. No holds barred, unrestricted. They will do anything. Um, they will say anything. They will play any dirty trick. And until you get over the shock of realizing that the world that you grew up in and the ethics that you believed to be held true, uh, and you believed that others shared those ethics, you have to abandon that. You shouldn't mm. abandon the ethics yourself. You lose who you are. You become like them. But you you have to come to terms with the fact that our opponents believe in a uh, utilitarian Marxist philosophy. They believe that the ends justify the means. They believe that um, the world is limited uh, and um, we have too many people. And uh, the only way to solve this is to have less people. Uh, they these are sincere beliefs. Uh, yes. And uh, that if they only had enough data on all of us, they could put it in a great big uh, machine learning, deep learning AI algorithm tool and derive a algorithm for the maximal good for the maximal number. And they have the power to implement it. They truly believe these things and they believe it's the right way to proceed. And their old philosophical concepts, I've written about this in the past, um, all of this utilitarianism, um, et cetera, is, is all ancient, you know, hundreds of years old, most of it, uh, and debunked in the, in the realm of modern philosophy, uh, you know, true philosophical thought. Uh, they're full of holes, logically, um, just as eugenics is. But there are still people out there, and unfortunately, a number of them have quite a bit of money and power. Uh, and Mr. Gates is, of course, our poster child for that. Absolutely. And they have, they have co-opted um, many and uh, um, money talks. And uh, on top of that, we have the um, bizarre situation, not just of the WEF, but of the administrative state that's been developed here in the United States, which is totally autonomous. They're the ones that run the country. It's not the politicians, it's not the president. Um, I, I'm of the opinion that Mr. Biden is essentially uh, a servant of the administrative state, not the other way around. The presidency is supposed to be in the driver's seat, but it's not. Um, it's the senior executive service that is, and it's only a couple thousand people. So this gives rise to the terminology. It's important to get the political uh, science language correct. And I try really hard to do that. Um, and because we're the our language is being so actively distorted in real time, in an Orwellian sense, even the meaning of the term vaccine, or a great example is the term anti-vaxxer, which is now modified to be defined as anyone who even questions vaccine mandates. That makes you a vaccine, an, yes. an anti-vaxxer. Um, 
So they are actively manipulating and destroying our ability to communicate with each other by, by modifying the meaning of words, just as Orwell taught us would be the case. And so I feel like it's super important to go back and touch ground and say, what are the meanings of these political science terms that describe ways of organization and waves of ruling? And um, Sheldon Wolin came up with the term uh, um, inverse totalitarianism. And uh, others now have amplified on that. I believe that's exactly what we have. That being a form of totalitarian control that is paradoxically upside down. And, and even Matthias had not been familiar with this until we chatted about it, uh, which is what we have here, where in ostensibly we have a president that is in control of the executive branch, but in function, we have an executive branch that's in control of the president. Mm -hmm. um, and that is inverse uh, to the normal power relationship. And then the totalitarianism comes from this belief of um, autonomous unilateral decision-making uh, that uh, doesn't um, really need to have itself validated by any kind of a democratic process or, or um, you know, elected process in any way. And then on top of that, we, we have this thing, the nice pretty word is corporatism or public-private partnerships. They love to use the term public-private partnerships. <laughs> that is the definition of fascism. Fascism is not a bunch of young men running around with tiki torches and aping old Nazi gestures and a paraphernalia and beating people up with bats or backing over them with their cars or whatever obscene um, gestures they may they may wish to use that they think evokes some some Nazi um, thing from you know mid-century. No, fascism is corporatism. Yep. It is the fusion as Mussolini of the said. interest. Huh. As Mussolini said, it's the fusion of the interest of the corporation with the interest of the state. But what's unique about what we've got, and Matthias teaches that each time we move into a totalitarian environment, um, it's different. Each of these different embodiments of totalitarianism has significant uh, unique features. And in this case, we've had the fusion of, uh, of we've had the development of fascism, but instead of linking it to a, uh, a single leader, for instance, in a nation state, a concept that they're trying to make obsolete, uh, it's linked to this inverse totalitarian structure, this uh, um, uh, cabal of uh, very, very powerful members that are largely within the senior executive service in the United States and that are completely untouchable, unimpeachable, unfireable, unless they are caught um, you know, in a pedophilia act. And even that, it seems they're relatively protected if the Jeffrey Epstein and Michelle, got, you know, the, the Giswell, um, uh, little Maxwell. books that they yeah. carry around. Yeah, yeah Maxwell. Um, you know, they won't release who the Johns were there. Uh, so I, I, we, we really are in something that is profoundly threatening. And on top of it, we have this issue of active advocacy of uh, globalists um, who are unelected, who are... Um, uh, 
um, seeking to impose, uh, a, you know, their own words, a new world, world order, a great reset, and exploiting the public health situation to their own economic ends. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's that's the other, you know, as I've, I've tried to run down these rabbit holes to answer the big why and the big how questions that, in my experience, were first posed by... Uh, during the Dark Horse podcast with Brett Weinstein, uh, um, towards the end of that podcast, uh, in I, my answer at the time was that this is an emergent phenomena due to multiple factors. And then I've kind of been dragged into the world of the WEF and the Great Reset and all of that logic and nefarious behavior. Um, it and, seems like it's I a thought, natural it's a natural progression though right you, you know you, you you could obviously speak at extreme length of the scientific medical aspects of this entire situation but you um, what i love listening to you is how you put you're comfortable progressing into the bigger picture and the and the the more invisible forces behind these decisions that might just pu puzzle the general public but you're saying no let's get some answers and find out who these people, these organizations and individuals are that are imposing, and these unelected individuals and organizations imposing um, decisions upon us that we have no say in. Well, we do have a say because we can stop complying, but that, but um, it appears we have not no really. Say. They're they're creating a system. I, I mean, this is earnest. They they're I, I'm completely convinced, and that. You, that we have these events like Justin Trudeau and his finance minister deploying, I think, prematurely the weapon at the individual level of being able to completely block your access to your own bank account because of your uh, political action in supporting a peaceful protest by truckers blowing their horns. And that was sufficient justification to completely block and in some case remove access to uh, your own bank account. Uh, and that, that is a stated objective of the social credit system pioneered in the CCP. Uh, and um, they, they, they completely wish to have digital ID for every single one of us, man, woman, and child, and there's a school of thought that that is the real agenda behind the drive towards universal vaccination. And uh, they want to have a digital ID. They feel the need to migrate from fiat currency to a digital centralized currency, as opposed to a decentralized currency. That's crucial. And that's another part of my journey has been spending a lot more time with economists, hedge fund managers, and people in the cyber currency world and trying to understand how they see the world, um, which is now, you know, increasingly relevant if you want to comprehend the forces at play here. Um, and uh, they're, they're, the logic is that the digital ID combined with uh, the social credit system, social scores, this is like taking your credit score and adding in things like your political behavior and your carbon footprint, et cetera, and uh, coming up with a aggregate score that will determine your ability to purchase goods and services. 
to access your own funds, uh, to determine what you will be allowed to spend your money on. Um, and when we get to digital central currency, they can put, they can place restrictions on what you can spend your money on, how you can spend it, and when you can spend it. If you don't spend it in sufficient time, it will be a limit or removed. Um, you will no longer have it, which will give them total control over the economy, which they believe they need, because it appears that uh, in their infinite wisdom, they have totally buggered up the global finance system. And we're watching that play out. Sri Lanka and the Dutch protesters are just the tip of the exactly. spear in yes. what's coming at us right now. All right. So I want to be respectful of your time constraints here. So having said everything you said, um, as we wrap up, it when I'm sure people ask you this all the time, as individuals and as part of a community, what do you say to people who, who ask you, hey, what can we do? What steps can we take? What what power can we take back inch by inch, step so by the, step? So the beginning point, I think, is to listen to what Matthias has been teaching us. And I'm so grateful to learn from him. Likewise. And have an opportunity to interact with him on a one-on-one -on -one basis fairly routinely. And the core of his diagnosis of our social ills is the loss of community. Um, we must rebuild community. As John Prine said, blow up your TV, move yes. to the country, plant a lot of peaches. Um, uh, and uh, you must rebuild community. It is the underlying illness that has given rise to all this. The illness is not SARS-CoV-2. The illness is the social forces and the technology that have torn our, the fabric of our communities asunder. And it's fascinating to watch as we tour the communities that are most resistant to the mass psychosis effect that Matthias has taught us so much about are the communities of faith. They have remained largely intact and largely resistant. So rebuild community, respect human dignity, no matter what life, rebuild a commitment or refresh your commitment to integrity and insist that the people that you interact with behave with integrity. Um, that's this little document about the Malone Doctrine. I, beyond those simple words that mean really so much to people, I do think that we need to prepare and think through for yourself. I don't mean go crazy um, with building a bomb shelter and packing food in in your uh basement although there may be merit to that there there's a school of thought um the phrase that's being used is greta famine that the um uh, environmental social and governance scores or esg scores that are behind the uh angst of the dutch protesters farmers uh that are the reason why um there's no petroleum exploration in the United States and the petroleum industry is collapsing. They're the tool, they are essentially the social credit system deployed to uh, industry in the United States. They're actively weaponized now. <coughs> if you have, <coughs> if you're a, on the board of directors or a CEO of a large corporation and you donate to a politician that has been labeled by the press as being racist, for example, 
your ESG, your company ESG score will go down. Wow. So ESG scores have been weaponized, just like social credit scores will be for all of us. And uh, we, they are, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I can't get in the head of Klaus Schwab. You know, is it just that he's incompetent or is it that he's evil or is it some blend of the two? It doesn't have to be either or. Exactly. Um, but, but there's something going on here and uh, there, whether it's intentional or circumstantial, a lot of, not only can you not square the circle that the quote public health measures that have been implemented on all of us have been shown again and again to do nothing to advance public health. But paradoxically, they do seem to advance a variety of economic interests. Uh, um, likewise, a number of the policies that are being implemented in the United States over the past two years, uh, not naming names, uh, trying to stay apolitical a little bit, um, are tearing apart the country economically and socially. And uh, the naming of your podcast indicates that you understand exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. And um, uh, the, there is a reasonable chance that we are looking at some major social disruptions. And uh, I think, including famine, uh, there's a school of thought that uh, by serious thinkers that the European Union is uh, fragmenting already. Italy and Greece are in default. It's just being covered up. The German economy, the euro is now equal with the buck. I don't remember when that last happened. Yeah. Um, and falling. Um, Euro Germany is on the ropes with its energy policy. They've suddenly decided that nuclear energy is green after all. Um, uh, they're going. They're looking at a winter of burning coal and wood. Uh, um, that they're they're. Those who believe the German economy is on the verge of collapse also. And Germany has been bankrolling the entire European continent. Um, all it's going to take is a couple of major defaults. And, the, and we're back in 07, 08, only worse. I don't know if you remember. In 07, when the recession hit, all shipping stopped. Ships would not move. They couldn't get insurance. They couldn't get yeah. financing. When that yeah. kind of thing happens, everything changes. And so there are those who are projecting major famine for over 1 billion people over the next year. Um, and, the, and the slang term that's being used is Greta famine. Uh, and, um, you know, because it's driven largely by the uh, um, exaggerated implementation of ESG score logic and, and the uh, compromise of the food chain fertilizer combined with the Ukraine war. It's like this constellation of things. So what can you do about it? You can just roll up in a ball and go get depressed or shoot yourself or whatever. Obviously I'm being facetious. Uh, you know, depression is a problem. OCD is another problem, or you can build intentional communities. You can reach out to your neighbors, um, start to grow your own food, um, build your network, build your community, find friends, um, support each other uh, and think through in a catastrophic environment, what are you going to need to survive? And uh, as you think through an, what is an intentional community, um, 
an early example of an intentional community is a monastery. Uh, hmm. And that's kind of when they emerged in a big, big way. Another modern example of intentional community, of course, going back to the Substack title, this Robert Malone is Galt's Gulch. Uh, Atlas Shrugged and Rand gave us a great example of an intentional community. Now it's uh, presented as a utopia and all utopias, I think all of us that have been through it um, in various ways, they often devolve into cults. Intentional communities don't have to be geographic. They can also be virtual. Uh, but, but it all comes back to what Matthias taught us so clearly. The real sickness here, the real underlying disease is our loss of community. And I think that we can be resilient enough to overcome this if we come together. And I think that it's super. The other thing that I love about Matthias's synthesis is that it is really helpful once you understand it to allow you to forgive what has been done to so many of us. Um, and I think that forgiveness is, I mean, there's a lot of, of full on warriors like my friend, Steve Bannon, um, who is, uh, you know, he's of, he is a, a full metal jacket, line him up against the wall and shoot him kind of a guy uh, and take no prisoners. Uh, and we need warriors, but I think it's super important we don't compromise our, our ideals in our own ethics. We don't want to become them. But I think it's also important that we find a way to forgive because uh, otherwise uh, we're going to just create our own little hell. Yeah, I, I think forgiveness is, is an underrated concept in the sense that it doesn't mean that you're condoning what was done to you or agreeing no. with it or forgetting that it happened. And unfortunately, it's it's kind of fallen under this umbrella that when you forgive someone, somehow everything is fine again. No, you, you may no. take a long time, no. if ever, to build trust with that person again or that group, but it is the entry point. And when I did get a chance to speak to Matisse, I loved how he wrapped up when we were talking. It was that same sense where as as bleak a picture as he might paint or you might have just painted, the, the most fundamental steps and advice are what can bring us back. It, it, you're not trying to reinvent the wheel. When you start talking about getting to know your neighbors, growing your own food and building a community, it doesn't get more basic and human than that. So it's it's just a sense of letting people know that transhumanism isn't the future. It's humanism. We're fine as humans. We don't need we don't need microchips in us. We have we have the tools and the makeup to create wonderful communities. It's just that it gets sort of beaten out of us by these higher powers that shouldn't be. But the more we learn and, and, and who wish kind of... to capitalize on us, they Absolutely. perceive us, they perceive us as economic units to, to have value extracted from. And we have to tell them that that is not the case. Um, and we have to live it. And uh, that's, that's this distinction between wokeism. Did I lose you? Nope. I, I just tried to close. Um, uh, that's, okay. I think the, another one of the key concepts is that uh, those of us that are aware um, 
uh, offer the alternative to wokeism. Uh, and those of us that are willing to commit to these principles and yet stay with eyes wide open to be awake, not woke. Um, and I think we can get through it. Yes, that's a delicate balance, but we, uh, we've proven in the past and we will prove again that we're up to the task. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to eat up any more of your time. I know you have a lot going on there. So let me just say thank you once again for all you do and for being here. I will include in the show notes links to your Substack, your website. I'm going to put in there the full link to the full three hours of the original Rogan show you were on. And most recently, okay. about a month ago. Yeah, just for context for people who perhaps yeah. judged it without listening. And then very recently, about a month ago, you were on Dark Horse and you and Brett got very technical <clears throat> about the medical and science stuff, which we didn't get into. And I'm going to include that link in case folks want to hear. Yeah, where sure. Your that, that actually got to. that got trimmed quite a bit because we started talking about ivermectin. And his yeah. producer is afraid <laughs> talking about ivermectin now. <laughs> But it, it was it was extremely enlightening in the sense of just hearing you guys talk about the technical aspects of this, and that's why when when I when you agreed to be on here, I was really hoping. All right, let's get a little more philosophical because I know you can go there, and that's why I just got out of your way, and I appreciate all you just said. So thank you so much for choosing to be here and and uh, keep up the incredible work. Thanks for your time, and uh, best of luck, um, fellow Truth Warrior. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. Um, I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, I'd really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. For just $5 a month, you get daily content, including these podcasts, at least once a week. That's $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day. So please consider doing this. Your help is essential. It's crucial. And this project depends on it. So thank you in advance. And let's get back to the show. Internet pioneer Jaron Lanier, when exposing the purpose of social media, stated, People are clustered into paranoia peer groups because then they can be more easily and predictably swayed. This line of thought reminds me of a 2021 study in which researchers demonstrated how frighteningly simple it is to influence humans with algorithms. An article about that study on the website Neural explained, the basic takeaway from the work is that people tend to do what the algorithm says whether they are being influenced to vote for a specific candidate based on an algorithmic recommendation or being funneled toward a perfect date on an app, we're dangerously easy to influence with basic psychology and rudimentary AI. As Norrell's Thomas McCauley pointed out in another article, we like to think we're agents of order, making informed decisions in a somewhat chaotic universe but we're unintentional cyborgs. Macaulay added, algorithms recommend films that I should watch, music I should listen to, food I should order, and people I should talk to on dating apps. It's all extremely efficient. I haven't, I haven't yet implanted a chip under my skin, but if Elon Musk has his way, this could happen soon. Well, I have a spoiler alert for you. 
and from Mr. McCauley and from Mr. Musk, corporate AI programming is not an unstoppable force of nature. Its only power lies in our compliance, complacence, and cooperation. The study I just mentioned seems to show that we're hopelessly manipulated by algorithms, but we have far more power than the elites want us to recognize. How can you assume this power? For starters, you must step away from the pervasive, malicious forces designed to control you 24-7. Never assume you are immune to manipulation. Hold no allegiance to any ideology or groupthink. Recognize that your autonomy is like kryptonite to the corporate-funded cyborgs. And never forget, they can't program what they can't find. In other words, keep your guard up. <laughs>